Hi everyone, welcome to the Sacred Musings podcast. It's episode 97, it's the 7th of September 23, and today we are thinking about accusations. So welcome to the podcast today, everyone. Um, yeah, we're thinking about accusations today, and I've called this podcast, Is the Accuser Always Holy Now? You might recognise that quote, but I will explain where it comes from and why I chose it a bit later on in the podcast. But yeah, thinking about how um, there seems to be so much accusation going on in our culture and thinking about um, how it can, you know, um, the problems that, that, that exist uh, when it comes to these things. Um, yes, yeah, so all of that needs to come. But before we get there, as always, I'll begin with a little bit of uh, of news or I say news. It's it's really articles and things that have made me think over the last uh, the last week or so. So not exactly news, but, um, you know, new new things which have either been in the paper or been been on the Internet, which I found interesting. So let me uh, let me open up. Here we go. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see and read, but I will read them out. If you're listening on the audio podcast, it's absolutely fine. So article number one is um, from The Telegraph, an article from um, yesterday, the 6th of September, by Alison Pearson. And the, the, the title is, Martha Mills's death should be a turning point for Britain. We can no longer trust the NHS. The subtitle, The tragic loss of the bright and beautiful 13-year-old is a consequence of the nation's worship of our broken healthcare system. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you will know that I quite often talk about the NHS and how I think we in the UK have a very unhealthy relationship with the NHS. And um, I think that's something that I've particularly realised since COVID, although I think I was kind of aware of it before. But what happened in this particular case is that Martha Mills was, a, um, a, as it says, a beautiful young 13-year-old uh, girl and she had a, a, a kind of freak, tragic cycling accident. She was taken to hospital in, uh, in London, which was a specialist for these, these kind of things, but she died because she was not transferred to the ICU, which, uh, which she needed to be. And um, let me just quote you a little bit from um, Alison Pearson. Um, what happened was, by the way, that her mother went uh, was interviewed on BBC uh, Radio about it, and uh, the presenter was saying started out by saying, you know, we we kind of expect um, the NHS to be to be there for us. And this is what Alison Pearson says. Yet, even in the face of this tragedy, occasioned by neglect and systemic failure. Michel Hussein was still reciting the We Heart the NHS mantra, those syrupy platitudes that do so much to deflect criticism from our dreadful health service. I'm afraid it is precisely that hushed, quasi-religious, worshipful tone which prevents vital reform, giving incompetent NHS management the idea that they are untouchable, while making staff afraid to raise unwelcome concerns. And I think this is... Um, actually, I think Alison Pearson is exactly on the money here, you know, that in a story which was, you know, NHS failure led to a 13 year old girl dying. The presenter on the BBC, the interviewer still felt the need to to come out with the we heart the NHS um, mantra. And Alison Pearson says it's exactly that attitude which is preventing much needed reform. And I think she's completely right. I think if we want to see the NHS reformed in the way that we we believe is necessary, I think we also need to get away from this, you know, ad- adulation, this deification of the NHS. I think that's so important. You know, we need to see its flaws um, clearly. And um, unfortunately, many people don't as yet. But it seems to be coming, which is, I suppose, you know, one bit of good news. Um, sometimes bad things need to happen before something, you know, people will recognise. Don't, um, you know, is, isn't that the case? OK, so the next thing, uh, also on the subject of health, this is an article on the HART website, uh, H-A-R-T, HART, Problem, Reaction, Solution, Big Farm Excels in Creating Customers for Life. And they were talking about something 
I've noticed actually John Campbell talking about this on his YouTube channel as well quite a lot about how Big Pharma likes to create um, customers so that you know rather than healing you they will make you a, a you know pay for drugs effectively which and they'll keep you on drugs because it's more profitable for them uh, and Big Pharma is an industry now which is driven by profit rather than by health and again that's something which I think I've woken up to in the last few years in a way which I didn't really see um, before. But what I thought was interesting about this, what particularly you might find it helpful and, and sort of practical and useful rather than just interesting, is looking at some of the examples they give of drugs which are potentially more harmful. Um, they talk about statins, SSRIs, some antidepressants, HRT and so on. Um, but then they, 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 they provide a list down at the end, um, dementia drugs, anticoagulants, bisphosphonates um, and so on and so forth. Things which um, don't actually have the scientific evidence which you would hope for uh, to be prescribed. And I thought you might just like to have a look at that list in case anyone you or, or anyone you know is on some of these drugs because uh, it might be worth doing a bit more research into them. And certainly for me, I think I'm not going to, you know, again, before COVID, if I was prescribed something by the doctor, I'd probably just have taken it. But now, you know, I, yeah, you, you, you've got to be aware, haven't you? You've got to be aware. So you might like to have a look at that list. Okay, the next thing which um, I think is interesting, which I saw, is actually a video. It's the documentary by the New Culture Forum. And um, their series called Heresies. But this one is episode 12, A London Lost, The Death of an English City. And I thought this was um, this was helpful because, you know, we, we don't like to talk about migration. We don't like to talk, well, say we. Um, I think, you know, that the political class, the media class, hate to talk about migration and the way that it's uh, changing the country. But I think we have to be honest about what is happening. And I think we have to, you know, look at, um, you know, to, to, to just to be open to talking about the truth and that London has changed. And this is not a this is not making, um, you know, a, a political point, even even just to acknowledge that things have changed and that not all of those changes have been for the better. Um and, uh, you know, that that's the thing, isn't it? That um, it's quite I find it quite, quite interesting and quite moving as well and quite troubling um, in about equal measure. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that was an interesting thing I saw this week. So let me move on to talking about Christianity. Um, the first there are three things here to mention. The first one was um, a, an interview with Mike Yeadon. You may know Mike Yeadon has been has been around since the beginning of of COVID. Uh, very sceptical of everything that was going on when it came to uh, to COVID. He was head of uh, I think um, R and D at Pfizer until he he moved on to start his own company and is now retired or or mostly retired. But um, he talk he's talking in this in this interview about his um, sort of road to Damascus moment where he came to recognise, um, he was kind of raised, not, not raised in a Christian family, but he sang in the choir of a, a local church in his village for a number of years, just from his own volition, um, I think he and a friend. So he, um, you know, he had some kind of Christian background. But uh, yeah, it's really interesting listening to this, listening to his testimony here. He just talks about his experience of coming to kind of appreciate that there is a, a spiritual dimension and you know coming to embrace Christianity so um, yeah I found that again really uh, really interesting and worth listening to just about an hour about 50 minutes and I think Mike Mike Yeadon's testimony starts about 20 minutes into it if you want to uh, to skip ahead if you're I think that at the beginning he sort of explains the background to the Damascus Road um, which is kind of what Mike Yeadon is sort of drawing on so yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, okay, a couple more things. This one is an article by Rod Liddle in the Times from uh, the second of September, but he said uh, the the headline is great. We banish Christianity. Now we're stuck in a moral wilderness. 
And I thought this was a really um, interesting article, especially, I don't think Rod Little is a, a Christian, but he, like so many people lately, has just realised what it is that we are missing. And let me um, quote from the article uh, just to explain what is um, what was going on. What was going on? Let me let me quote what he says. The strictures of the old church may have been confining and rudimentary by our modern standards, but they provided a template by which we could live decent lives in a cohesive society. Don't nick stuff. Don't kill anyone. Don't shag your neighbour's wife. Put other people first. Work hard and save your money and, more than anything, prostrate yourself before God. This last is crucial. The notion that we are not alone, that we are being watched and judged from above. Without it, we subside naturally into narcissism, amorality, and that most modern of phrases never far from our lips when we have done something venal, stupid or selfish. Don't judge me. Um, and there we go. And uh, he, he, he goes on to talk about, you know, how if you um, remove the taboos against divorce, you end up with a lot of single mums who are dependent on the state. Uh, for example, um, you talk about how we're very self-centred and, um, you know, how humanism has provided nothing in its place. So yeah, I think that's really worth reading. Do have a look at that. Um, and the final thing I wanted to mention is on a very similar vein, article in The Telegraph, Britons have given up on the church. We'd rather worship ourselves. That's the title of the 4th of September, written by Celia Walden. And again, let me just quote you a little bit from this article to, to whet your uh, appetite. The number of Brits who said they had no religion may have risen 12 points at the last census to 37%, but that's not strictly true. They have a religion, an institutionalised set of attitudes and beliefs. They worship daily at the altar of me. It's all about wellness in the church of me, about physicality, beauty, defying time and mortality by working out our bodies at the Pilates studio in the gym. Yes, we'll play at spirituality with our bite-sized YouTube meditations and yogic influencer-style mantras. But, crucially, it's a safe kind. It's ironic that, as a secular society, we've thrown ourselves into the cult of self, precisely because we are flailing with no basic spiritual scaffold to keep us steady. The idea of being handed out nourishment in the form of the, body, uh, the blood and body of Christ is ridiculed, but will guzzle down our green juices and superfoods in the hope they'll give us what our empty souls are lacking and ensure an eternal, if spiritually devoid, life. There we go. And I think that that was, that was um, really interesting as well. Just people picking up on this notion that no, we've taken away Christianity. We've taken away that, that spiritual dimension to life completely. And it's been replaced by the cult of, of me. And that's what people are living for. And it's completely hollowed out our lives. You know, it's robbed us of joy. It's robbed us of, of values, of purpose, of meaning, everything good. And, um, you know, I just think, feel like it's interesting that so many people now are waking up saying this publicly, you know, recognising it. And I just hope that more and more people kind of wake up and recognise this uh, as well. Speaking of um, just on one final note, uh, last week's podcast, I talked about why people hate God. And I just think it's interesting, you know, I said in that in that podcast you know, um, it's the, the me thinks he doth protest too much attitude of a lot of atheists or, or non-believers who proved my point by last week when I published um, that podcast coming onto YouTube and commenting saying, I don't hate God. You can't hate someone who doesn't exist. You know, I, no, this is ridiculous. And I, I just think it's, it's the lack of self-awareness that I find so, so strange. You know, it's like, do you not see what you're doing that you know it's it's this defensiveness that uh, that I was talking about it's proving my point and that said uh, I will not be responding to comments from people who do not actually engage with what I say in the video and I think that that will be my policy from now on that if you don't actually engage with what I say in the podcast 
then I can't really engage with the comment. I mean, if you're if you're you know positive and 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 saying, oh, do look at this, look at that, or you know, that's different. But you know, I think sometimes people just react to the title, and I think that's what they were doing last week. They didn't actually watch or care about what I actually said. They just reacted to the title, and that was it. Um, so if you're going to engage and you want to to come back on me, then please engage with what I actually say rather than just the title. Okay, let's move on now to the main topic. Um, and uh, we're thinking today about accusations. So today I've called it, uh, Is the Accuser Always Holy Now? And uh, if you remember back to English at school, this is where I, I learnt it. It's from The Crucible, the play by Arthur Miller, published in 1953. The whole quote... Um, is uh, why do you never wonder if Paris be innocent or Abigail? Is the accuser always ho holy now? And, and the idea is that you know it's a play. If if you, you you're not aware of it, about the Salem witch trials of the I think the 1650s in America, a small town called Salem, where uh, all of a sudden all of these young women were accusing one another of being witches. And um, I remember I studied this in uh, my English class at school, uh, and. I don't remember much about it, but this line, more than anything else, really stuck with me. And that's because I think this play taught me that accusations can be political and accusations are not necessarily true, but they can be used for political um, purposes. And we know that, that accusations can be misused, don't we? You know, they can be made politically, you know, because of someone's views political views or, or otherwise they can be made because of career advancement you know if, if you are in the running for a job particularly a high high stakes job uh, you can accuse your opponent of doing something and you know that will that will um, put them at a disadvantage I put you at an advantage um, they can be made out of malice you know, if you just really hate someone's guts you know um, can make an accusation uh, the possibilities are virtually limitless when it comes uh, to to why accusations can be made, and sometimes they're a mask for um, you know, personal guilt as well. You know, we call this projection, or psychologists call this projection. You know, when you make an accusation against someone else because of something, um, you know, you are trying to deflect attention from yourself, or maybe trying to assuage a sense of guilt in yourself. Um, so all sorts of reasons why accusations can be made. And we know that just because an accusation is made does not mean that it is actually true. And that's the case, isn't it? That, you know, they can be entirely fabricated. Uh, someone's words can be taken out of context or twisted. Uh, things can be exaggerated. Now, we know this. And I apologise if all of this sounds a bit like I'm, you know, teaching your grandmother to suck eggs sort of thing um but I, I think it's worth bearing in mind because you know this i know this you know anyone who's ha who has uh, has been involved with small children knows this you know any dinner lady at school or what have you that kids will accuse each other of stuff and it's not always true all of that you know we know that accusations can be made which are false why am i talking about this because I, I wonder whether the powers that be don't know this. That seems to be the issue. But it seems to me that we are living in days when accusations are being misused. And if you're looking at the, the video uh, on YouTube, then I've put a picture up there of Nigel Farage. And of course, he was recently uh, debanked by Coots. And when he put in a subject access request... To, to get the data that they held about him, what he found was that they uh, had had a meeting um, in the last November or, or sometime before, basically accusing him of things like racism and extremism and, uh, you know, like stuff which is a little bit vague and kind of, and all of that. But But they'd accused him of this without actually accusing him and, you know, just decided to debank him. Um, so, you know, it, he was kind of accused, uh, although not publicly by, by Coots, uh, to, certainly to start with. 
I think it didn't become known until after the subject access request. Um, but, you know, similar things have happened, like with uh, Lawrence Fox. I mentioned the article uh, about him being accused of racism earlier, and I'll, I'll quote from that later, actually. But, you know, he was accused of racism. And again, you know, it's not it's a baseless accusation because he has not been racist, but it, it destroyed his career. Um, J.K. Rowling, she's been accused of transphobia. And, you know, if you ask any of the people who are accusing her of transphobia what she's actually said, which has been transphobic, then they can't point to any examples because she hasn't been transphobic. But it's just, again, this accusation which kind of seems to have stuck to, to some extent in this community, even though she's not transphobic. And um, a last example uh, is um, Mark Stein and Ofcom. Um, so, you know, Ofcom investigated Mark Stein's GB News show for talking about, I think, COVID vaccines. And they, um, you know, it, it's, it was just seemed to be so nakedly political because they were not investigating the BBC or other mainstream media outlets who had published equally outrageous things about um, COVID and, and vaccines and so on, anti-scientific things. Um, so it was seemed very targeted against uh, against Mark Stein and GB News, and it's not the only example where this has happened. Um, and it, you know, so that that's examples from the corporate world from the media world, but even within the courtroom, you know, that um, uh, Darren Grimes, for example, was pursued by the Electoral Commission for um, uh, misusing money, and and he was found not guilty and was awarded money to a, a sort of compensation. But, you know, the Electoral Commission were pursuing him. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the things was it was not fair because they were not treating everyone with the same um, you know, because he was on the Brexit side of the argument. He was not treated fairly. That was his argument. And he 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 actually won that in court. Similarly, I mentioned Lucy Letby uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I think, you know, again, this is something that's really um, hit me, I think, uh, just how. If you look at the the evidence there, it really seems it it does not stack up, and particularly when you you think that this expert witness, so called, was not actually an expert, and he just presented himself to the police saying, "I can help you," um, rather than actually you know being someone who who was called you know as an expert with someone who was recognised as an expert, if you like. So, you know, accusations are the, the miscarriages of justice, accusations all over our culture, our society at the moment, in my opinion. So let me talk about um, how we can handle accusations fairly. What are the what is necessary to uh, for there to be, um, you know, what, what preconditions are necessary for dealing with accusations fairly? So I've got three or well three and a half no, four things really um but three main things here which are there to try and you know, make sure that accusations can be dealt with fairly the first one is the rule of law so if there's no ultimate authority to appeal to what we're left with is relativism relativism and the court of public opinion now there has to be a something which defines what is right and what is wrong whether that be, um, you know, the what you call the law or or something, there has to be some standard that you appeal to to say this is right behaviour and this is wrong behaviour, and we have to agree on that, because otherwise you're nowhere. You know, the the rule of law is paramount. That has to be the first thing when dealing with accusations fairly. You know, you have to be able to say someone has someone has broken the law and this is what they have done and, and we all agree that this is the law they've broken it the second thing um, very much related to this is the ability to determine whether the law has been broken or not in other words to have laws which are clear and unambiguous and therefore accusations which are clear and unambiguous um, a friend of mine who was a barrister he once um, said he said the only law that should be in in play is a law which says 
uh, against being bloody stupid in public. That was what he said. He said that that was the only law that should be necessary. And he was training to be a lawyer as well. Um, but but this is, you know, this is the thing that such a law. Yeah. OK, it might be it might be um, uh, that that might be a law if that was the law of the land, you know, the law against being bloody stupid in public. But it wouldn't really be very useful, would it, if I'm honest, that we'd all have different ideas about what it meant to be stupid in public. And this is the thing that, you know, you wouldn't you would have real difficulty determining whether that law had actually been broken or not. This is why you need some specifics in the law and you need to be unambiguous about you know, this is the line, this crosses the line and this doesn't. So murder, for example, you know, the, the taking of an innocent human life, that uh, that should be quite clear. Even though there may be different penalties for things like manslaughter, you know, if it was unintentional, yes, OK, we accept that. Uh, if it was premeditated, you know, there's a harsher punishment. So, so all of those things, yes, we do accept that there are different levels, different uh, punishments. Um, but, you know, we need to determine whether the law has been broken or not. So we need a clear law. The third thing is uh, a judicial process which is fair and unbiased. Um, and of course, I mean, the, the primary thing here is having people, you know, the police, the judges and so on, magistrates, who are fair and unbiased. Um, so the people involved. Uh, but I think it's, it's the process uh, as well comes into this. Um, one of the things which I, I've been really struck by how important it is uh, lately is the presumption of innocence. Let me just quote you from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 11. Everyone charged with a penal offence has the right to be presumed innocent until proved guilty according to law in a public trial at which he has had all the guarantees necessary for his defence. So, you know, everyone who is accused of something has the right to be uh, innocent, uh, presumed innocent until proved guilty. Uh, and I think that it's so important. You know, that's the, the basis of, uh, you know, um, the legal system in our country and has been for, for um, you know, a thousand years. Innocent until proved guilty, you know, which requires you to know what you what law you've been accused of breaking and give you the opportunity to defend yourself. That's so important, I think. And um, kind of related to that is that, you know, the saying justice is blind, that it should be objective and impartial, that, you know, you, you don't give someone a lighter sentence because they are good looking and wealthy and, you know, graduates, you know, with prospects and what have you. You know, you don't treat them fairly when you might treat a homeless person, uh, you know, unfairly. You know, the, the, that, that kind of thing does go on. But the law should relate, you know, this is the law. This is the evidence in this case. Has this person transgressed this law? This is the sentence for transgressing this law in, in this way. So it should be objective, fair, impartial, you know, no favouritism. And, um, you know, we know that, yeah, as human beings, we, you know, we do find it difficult to be impartial, but that should be the aspiration, at least. And I think that is something that we should aspire to. The fourth thing which I've mentioned here, and I'm not really going to talk, talk much about this um, in the podcast, but it's just, is there any redress for bringing a malicious accusation? And I think that's something that um, is, is important as well, that... Uh, if someone brings a malicious accusation, do they get any comeback? Because if, if a system makes it easy to bring a malicious accusation or a false accusation, then you're not going to discourage anyone from doing it. So, you know, if it's, if it's in some way, if the bar is a little bit higher to making a, to making a, a claim, then, you know, that, that, uh, that will hopefully put off, to some extent, people who are malicious. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to go too much into that because that's a, a little bit more of a difficult area. But the first three, you know, the rule of law, the ability to determine whether the law has been broken, you know, clarity of law 
and a fair and unbiased judicial process. I think those three are absolutely key. So let's compare then uh, where we are um, with the ideal. Where do we fall down? So firstly, let's think about uh, the rule of law. Now think about it. Which law do we abide by? Are we all in agreement that we abide by the law of the land? And it seems to me that this is uh, the first big area where we fall down because some people seem to think that we should be abiding by another law, for example, Sharia law. Um, if you look at what's happened in the north of England, uh, for example, uh, like the Batley uh, Grammar School um, and so on and, and so forth, you know, it seems like there are we now have a de facto blasphemy law when it comes to, uh, to, to Muslims and images of the Prophet Muhammad and so on. Uh, so that is the first thing that we are not abiding by, you know, the, um, the British law. You know, but we are uh, abiding by by different people's ideas. Uh, or what about the Green Movement? I was watching a documentary, the uh, Spiked um, documentary uh, yesterday, um, which was um, talking about how you know quoted Roger Hallam or showed a, a clip of Roger Hallam, who was talking about you know how he was going to put um, a journalist on trial for you know misinformation about you know climate change, and it was all again. It's like how can you? How can you know having an opinion about climate change be illegal? But this is again, this is where we are. It's it's not illegal, but yet it seems to be being treated as such by the climate activists or some of them. Uh, and it's similar to the whole cancellation thing, you know, that people are being cancelled now for having perfectly valid legal views and expressing them, but then being cancelled for it. So it's not the law of the land which is being looked to but other things and um, this kind of bridges the gap between this this section and the next section but you know you think about non-crime hate incidents and uh, this is um, well this should go in the next section really but this is the thing you know that explicitly um, the police are saying that there are things which are non-crime but nonetheless are being recorded and I think they've now been told to stop recording those incidents but you know this is this is where we're at so let's move on to that. Is the law clear and unambiguous as it should be? Is you know is it possible to look at the law and say clearly, yes, someone has broken the law here and not here? And of course, you know, there are always going to be difficult circumstances. Of course, you know, there are always going to be fringe cases, edge cases. But but by and large, is it possible to say someone has broken the law by the letter of the law and uh, they've done this or, you know, they haven't, they're innocent of this? Um, let me again look at a few different examples. Um, think about Lawrence Fox uh, again and the racism. I mentioned the um, article that Douglas Murray wrote. So let me quote you what Douglas Murray said. Um, about racist, how do you prove that you are not racist? Especially if you live in a society in which people go around daily insisting that our whole society is racist, that it is based on racism systemically racist and so on the answer for some years has been that you cannot racism is a charge that you may be able to prove but it is not a charge that it is always possible to disprove at least since the mcpherson report into the metropolitan police almost a quarter of a century ago racism has been a charge which falls into the eye of the beholder category if someone believes that racism is involved in a crime then it is so and this is actually what has given rise to the non-crime hate incidents. That if someone believes that you've said something or you know, done something which is motivated by hate, in inverted commas, then it's um, particularly egregious. But it's, it's in their opinion. And of course, you know, you can't really prove someone's motivation, can you? All you can really judge is someone's, someone's actions. Um, that people don't always give their motivations and it's you know but but you can judge someone by what they do and uh and this is the problem with the law at the moment that it's kind of it's almost into the position of judging motivation when it comes to these hate incidents 
And that's really uh, worrying because as Douglas Murray points out, you can't prove a negative. You can't always prove that something wasn't racism. Um, especially to these people who think that everything is racism now. So the law is not clear and unambiguous. But there are other problems like the Equalities Act and uh, transgender. I know that a lot of schools, for example, have gone down the uh, transgender route citing the Equalities Act. And yet I believe that the Equalities Act, uh, your gender um, status is not a protected characteristic that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they've misapplied the Equalities Act, the Equalities legis Legislation. But then this is almost, you know, being encouraged by the Equalities Legislation. And that's part of the problem here, that, you know, people think about equality uh, and they, they think of equality as being what they want it to mean rather than what the law actually says. Is that the fault of the law or is that the fault of the people? Well, you know, I think we could probably say that there's faults on both sides, but I, certainly the, the equalities legislation is not as clear as it should be. And uh, I, I know uh, many people think it should be repealed. And, and I, I think I would agree with that, really, that, you know, it, it's, it's led to, it hasn't led to anything good. Um, get rid of it. Um, and then, you know, you just think back a couple of years to the whole lockdown I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine now, but the, the difference between law and guidance, you know, and the way that the police seem to almost make it up on the spot because they, even they, did not know the difference between what was law and what was guidance. And, um, you know, most ordinary people didn't know the difference between law and guidance. Um, so again, you know, the, the boundaries between law and guidance were blurred and that there were things that we were against the guidance but which were legal to do uh, but nonetheless you know the police kind of enforced it as if it was law in some cases um, so the law particularly recently we've fallen uh, away from the law being you know a clear unambiguous guide as to, to what's uh, what is permitted but it has become muddied um, that's where we are and the third and final thing is, is the law being applied without bias? So again, let me run you through a few examples, and I'm sure that you can think of more, because of all of the, the categories, I think this one most of all is the most obviously where I think the law is not being applied uh, fairly and without bias. But to give you a few examples, grooming gangs. Uh, the, the headline from a, a an independent, the independent newspaper, 6th of February 2022. Fight against grooming gangs hindered by fear of being branded racist, says official. So that was the thing with the grooming gangs. Then, you know, all of these kind of um, Pakistani Muslim origin uh, gangs that were happening. And, you know, it was, main, it was mainly, it seems... Um, uh, Pakistani Muslim gangs and I, it's not again you know that's the thing we have to you have to be factual don't you and um, it seems that that was um, that was the, the primary origin and yet because of that fact the police felt hampered in investigating because they didn't want to be accused of, of racism so they rather let thousands of uh, young white working class girls be raped and so on um, and be poorly poorly treated rather than be accused of racism. So the law was not being applied fairly without prejudice uh, and so on. Um, again, um, another example, Ofcom um, versus GB News. The Ofcom have been very quick to jump on GB News when they've been pushing so-called misinformation, but they haven't, as far as I know, jumped on uh, the mainstream media like um, you know BBC and so on when, when they pushed horrendous misinformation about Covid and all of the, the, the nonsense which they peddled over the last few years so you know again Ofcom have been very biased in in the way that they have um, handled the different media organizations GB News seems to come under uh, a lot of fire um, and one final example here, and this was an example from the, the law courts, and this one 
I almost find difficult to believe. But um, the, the headline, uh, the title of this article, it was in the Telegraph, 26th of September 2017. Headline, Oxford student too bright for prison is spared jail for stabbing boyfriend. Let me just quote you a little bit from that article. Lavinia Woodward, 24, who stabbed her Cambridge University boyfriend in the leg with a bread knife, was spared jail yesterday as she was commended for her strong and unwavering determination to address her drug addiction. The decision was last night criticised by criminal justice campaigners who said that the lenient ruling would deter men who had fallen victims to domestic abuse from coming forward. So this young woman, uh, aged, well at the time I think, aged 24, was uh, spared jail for stabbing her boyfriend under, because she was under the influence of alcohol and drugs. And because she'd, she, she broke the terms of her bail, but because, you know, she seemed nice... And because, you know, she was bright, then the judge gave her a lenient sentence. And you just have to wonder, would the same outcome have have, have happened if it had been a man? And especially if it had been a, a working class man. You know, the, it's one of these things, isn't it? I mean, um, you can never know. But it, it seems, again, that uh, this judgment was quite lenient on her. Um, whereas there are other judgments which are not um, and uh, we see that don't we so yeah it, it, it seems all over the law is not being applied without bias and fairly so where does God come into this and I think this is an, an example of where um, where there's no God there is no justice and this is why I think, uh, you know, it's so important to be thinking about about these things. You think about those categories, um, you know, one God, monotheism, in other words, uh, means that there is only one set of rules. And we've looked at this on, on the podcast before. If there is only one God, there is only one law. So there's not, you know, there's no God, um, Christian God, there's no, you know, and Allah. It's either one or the other. You know, so there's only one set of rules. Either, you know, the the Christian set of laws is right, or Sharia law is right. It can't be both. That's um, that's that's the thing. Uh, secondly, God's law is clarity, and and um, so is the the guidance. So, for example, the Ten Commandments. I mean, you couldn't really get much clearer than the Ten Commandments. And there are other principles, like in the law of Moses, um, and we looked at this a little bit in Os Guinness's book. Um, but you know the principles of applying the law uh, also clarity, and, th- and that doesn't mean that you know we don't have to think at all. Of course, we have to do the hard work of thinking how the principles apply in different situations. But there is guidance there, and you know it is it is there about how we how we actually apply the law and, and, and treat the, you know, kind of different things. So, so God's law uh, is, is uh, there's one God and the law is clear as well. And thirdly, when it comes to fairness and apply, you know, without bias and, uh, and so on, God is a God of justice and calls us to be just. And we could spend a lot of time thinking, uh, thinking about this and thinking through this. But I just want to quote from Proverbs chapter 6 verses 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Um, These are things that the Lord detests. And these are things which are so common in our culture today um false witnesses lying uh, stirring up conflict in the community shedding even shedding innocent blood these are things that the lord hates and god is a god of justice he, he calls us to be like him in that one thing which i didn't put on the the slide there which i think i i, I really wanted to mention and that we looked at this a few weeks ago when looking at satan um, is that Satan, his name 
it means the accuser. I think that that's the uh, Diabolos is the name, the accuser, the one who slings accusations across. And it talks in, in the Bible about how Satan accuses um, the brethren day and night, you know, accuses Christians day and night. And that's what Satan does. And you think if accusations are currently holding sway in our society, if there is a lack of justice, then who is holding sway in our society? And I think that's something that's worth thinking about, that uh, especially within the church, you know, and, and I have a little bit of experience of this, of accusations within the church. And, um, you know, it, it's not right that, you know, this should be the case in the church as well. If if God is just, then the church especially should be, a, you know, um, an outpost of justice. And it's not. And that shows that there are real problems. Um. I just wanted to finish this section by, I've got a, a little um, picture up there if you're watching uh, from Scooby-Doo. You know, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. And I just put on, on there, who watches the watchers? Because this is the thing, really, a, a fair justice system, it depends upon people acting with justice. And I really think there is a connection here. As, in fact, Rod Little said... You know, people prostrating themselves before God. That, that if, you know, in a secular view, if people think that they can get away with it, then there is no hope, you know, because they will just act however they want to. And they won't, um, you know, there will be, they'll, they'll be able, they'll, they'll think they'll be able to get away with it. But if we have, you know, know that God is watching, then that will constrain our actions i hope now when there is a fear of god and you know knowing that we are accountable to a higher authority then it doesn't matter if nobody else is watching us you know we won't think that we can get away with anything because we know that god is watching even in our private moments and so we won't try and just get away with things and that i think is one area where you know the, the lack of of christianity makes a big difference that you know, people think they can get away with it, so they do, uh, and that's uh, that's a real problem. So um, yeah, do uh, do let me know your thoughts. Um, you can let me know in the comments below. Uh, leave a comment on YouTube. You can uh, Telegram me. Link is down below, or you can email me through sacredmusingspod at gmail.com. Um, and I, I'd love to hear from you your thoughts. So uh, yeah, let me know. And um, by the way, just a reminder that if you'd like to uh, support the podcast as well, I'd love to hear you getting in touch. But there, are, uh, you can also buy me a coffee. Uh, the buy me a coffee link is down below as well. And thanks so much, everyone, for uh, all of you who support me in all of those different ways. So uh, let's finish with a little short reflection from the Bible. And this is a, a passage which I did on um, understand the Understand the Bible um, uh, Bible study live stream. I do one every Wednesday. And this was the passage that we had yesterday. And this is from Isaiah chapter 8. But I, I'll read it from verse 12. Um, and this really struck me. And I thought this would make a good, a good place to finish the podcast today. So Isaiah chapter 8 from verse 12. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. I was really struck by this passage, actually, because, uh, well, firstly, it says, do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. And, you know, these people, this people of the day, I think, were facing um, disaster. But they said, oh, no, that's just a conspiracy. That's just a conspiracy theory. 
you know, then nothing's going to happen. Don't worry. And of course it did. And, you know, I think it's a warning to say, don't go along with what society says. Don't go along with the media. Don't go along with politicians. You know, use, uh, you know, think, think rightly. Think, think with godly judgment. Fear, fear the Lord. You know, don't be afraid of everything that people are afraid of or everything that we're encouraged to be afraid of. But fear the Lord and trust in him. And you know, it struck me that um, you know, at the end of the day, Isaiah and, and this particularly this passage in Isaiah is that choice between fear of fear of God, fear of the Lord or fear of man. And, you know, who we put our trust in, who we who we are most concerned about, what we're most concerned about. And um, this uh, finishes out by saying, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in him. And I think that's a good place to finish saying that, yes, you know, we may be living in difficult times, but we need to say, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in him and we will see vindication um, that those who who look to him, those who look to the truth will be vindicated in the end. So we will wait for him. We will trust in him and um, we will see we will see his blessing uh, in the end. So I hope that that is an encouragement to you. Um, just a short reflection there, but um, yeah, I, I, that encouraged me yesterday and I hope it's an, it's an encouragement to you today. Let's uh, close the podcast with a prayer and ask for God's help as we go out into this week. And so Heavenly Father, we do recognise the problems in our world at the moment. We recognise how people have forgotten you and, and abandoned you and the problems that causes. We particularly uh, see the, the way that justice is not upheld in our society, the way that there are miscarriages of justice in the law courts and in public opinion, in the media, in other places. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring real change and that your justice would be upheld once again. Um, but we do pray for ourselves that you would help us to be concerned with justice, to do fairly and justly by people in our own lives and uh, to to be people who are committed to the truth, not to fear, not to fear man, but to fear you and to 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 wait for you, to hold fast and, and trust you. So we pray that you would help us here this day and every day and uh, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, joining me today. Um, uh, back to normal this week, and uh, I'll be back again uh, next week, uh, God willing. And uh, until then, uh, have a lovely week, and uh, I'll see you again soon. God bless. <laughs>